What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I walk a straight line, shackled and chained. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hillstring Gang, Rango. to Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison, and I'm Jim Chapman. Woody Overton could not join us today. We're working on some big, big stuff, and uh, Woody's on assignment. That's all I can say, but there's uh, there's going to be some really big stuff coming around the bend for everybody, so look forward to that. And I thought today it would be fun to, you know, tell you some of the stories of Angola that you may not be familiar with that aren't necessarily stories that can fill up like a whole hour of content, but at the same time need to be told and are really good stories. And uh, so I wanted to share those with you and we're going to jump right into it and the first story i'm going to tell you about is actually about a former warden of angola by the name of john whitley and john whitley was actually the warden of angola from 1990 until 1995 and look john whitley the prison warden was Probably as prototypical as you can get to a prison warden when you would think of one. 
kind of like the opposite of Burl Kane. Burl Kane was someone that, you know, when when you saw him, you wouldn't think he was the warden for the largest maximum security prison in in America. Um, same thing with John Whitley, but on the total opposite end, he is exactly what you would picture. He was a, a cowboy character, actually wore a cowboy hat and dressed, you know, with a button up shirt. The picture I'm actually looking at now, he has a, a vest. It's almost like a leather vest over that button up shirt and wears glasses, mustache, just uh, looks like someone you would picture as a as a warden, um, and had a a short but storied history at Angola relative to being a warden. Although he started off at the very bottom, and we're going to tell you all about that. Um, John Whitley attended Southeastern Louisiana University in Hammond, Louisiana, which is actually probably about. Oh, an hour and 20 minutes from Angola. Um, it's from where we record right outside of Baton Rouge. It's actually about a half hour from us. Um, it is the, the I guess, the second largest college in Louisiana outside of Louisiana State University. Uh, and a good college. Uh, and Whitley attended that college, and he was actually born in Hammond, Louisiana as well. So he went to school, same same place he was born in. Now, after he left college, he ended up graduating in 1968. He enlisted in the United States Army. And that's, that's important. That was an important step in his life because that was kind of in the uh, heyday of Vietnam. And People weren't necessarily just enlisting into uh, into the army. You know, they were getting drafted. So, kind of shows you uh, John Whitley's courage and his commitment to his country that he would enlist in the United States Army, and he actually served during the Vietnam War and was discharged in 1970. Now, shortly after that. He started his career in corrections. So Whitley started that career at Angola in 1970. Uh, And he rose pretty much through those ranks quickly. Uh, He eventually became a deputy warden. And then he was promoted to warden of another Louisiana prison. So he was deputy warden at Angola. And I know you've heard about us talk about Hunt Correctional Center, which is – uh, a prison, it's kind of like the baby baby brother to Angola, just a smaller, uh, not, not so violent a prison as Angola. And uh, they needed a warden, and he actually got promoted uh, to the warden of Hunt Correctional. And from there, he left the state, and he ran a private prison in Texas. And I know you've heard us talk about that with the the private prisons are actually they're not ran by state employees. They're ran privately and the state pays them for that service. And Texas has several of those. And he ran uh, one of those private prisons in Texas. Now, in 1990, Louisiana was like, man, what's going on here? This guy is in Texas, and he's got all this experience. He's a Louisiana guy, and we need him 
at Angola. And this was 1990, and Angola was in just a mess at that point. Um, and they needed someone to restore order there, basically. Um, at the time that that they were seeking out John Whitley, they were having frequent, very frequent stabbings, suicides. Uh, they were dealing with a lot of escapes, and a U.S. federal judge had actually declared what's known as a state of emergency at the prison in response to an ACLU lawsuit against the state, uh, specifically for the horrendous conditions at Angola. So it was uh, it was a situation where they needed someone not only you know with some Louisiana ties that that really cared, but they also needed someone that had the experience to handle such a prison. And, and being that John Whitley started there, rose all the way up to deputy warden. And, you know, that was back since 1970. Um, he was the perfect candidate for that. And so he took that job. And within two years, Whitley had pretty much stemmed all of that violence. Um, he established incentives for good behavior which is something they did not have in Angola prior to his his arrival there as warden. Um, some of that, some of those incentives for good behavior, you know, he let allow the inmates to have extra visits. He would increase the educational opportunities uh, for for the inmates. If they, if you were good, you maybe you had the opportunity to uh, learn a trade that you had to have good behavior in order to get to learn like maybe welding or something. I mean, you don't want someone that's causing a bunch of trouble in Angola, uh, getting a hold to a welding machine. Right. So, uh, those things he figured out, he figured out the important thing, uh, when you're running a prison and that is you've got to have incentives for the inmates. If there's no incentive for good behavior, they're not going to be good. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Um, so that was something he, he really stemmed, uh, education wise for them. Also literacy tutoring, uh, computer and paralegal courses. He started bringing those into the prison, not quite at the level that, uh, Warden Kane did later on, but the infancy of that, uh, you know, the, uh, is a credit to John Whitley and the things that he did. So he also enabled some trustworthy and deserving inmates to travel outside of the prison as part of some athletic teams and inmate bands that provided entertainment for, I mean, they would entertain churches. They would entertain nursing homes and other charitable organizations throughout the area. John Whitley was kind of the guy who, uh, you know, came up with the idea to start offering these things as as a uh, as a deterrent, if you will, against violence. And and he kind of knew that these programs were the way to start. So he also launched an outreach program um, to all the criminal justice programs in the state of Louisiana. So he would he would basically send prison officials and inmates, and they would go into these college classrooms. And they would help both the students and the faculty better understand, you know, the realities of not only managing a prison, but life in prison as an inmate. Those things weren't done, at least with Angola inmates, before John Whitley became warden. Now, uh, you know, 
one thing that's very important in prison, but is not commonly practiced, I guess you could say, is having an open door policy with the media. Take it from me. Y'all know that uh, I love to research and it's not easy at all to find information about Angola um, or probably most of your state prisons. And that is, you know, they kind of keep things that go on inside that prison, inside that prison. And uh, you got to really dig to find information on stuff like that. But he he was committed to what I would call an open door policy with the media. Um, and, uh, you know, even the Angolite, which we've, we've done several episodes about the Angolite and, uh, and read many, many articles on that. Well, um, the Angolite, the biggest concern with that magazine as time went on, and I noticed this as I was reading it, was it it got a little farther and farther away from what was actually happening. What they were printing was the truth, but, it, you know, where in the 40s and 50s when the Angolite was produced, they were talking about all these, you know, escapes and stabbings and all the things that happened inside that prison. When it got around to the 80s and 90s, was a lot softer. I mean, there were things going on, but they weren't allowing the uh, Angolite publishers to, or editors rather, to print that or talk about it. And so it didn't necessarily mean it wasn't going on. It's just the editors weren't putting it in there. Uh, but he he wanted to uh, have a, uh, a welcoming nature with the media and try to cooperate to them uh, cooperate with them rather. And so one of the things that he allowed the Angolite to do was to produce material for radio and television journalism inside the prison, which believe it or not, they have their own radio station there. They have, uh, a lot of, uh, film equipment there and they can actually film documentaries and stuff. Uh, you know, the, the prisoners actually learn how to do this and are as good as, you know, they got some producers in, in Angola that are, are as good or better than I am at, at doing that. And uh, uh, some of them probably better. And just amazing, amazing people out inside that prison that produce these things. But he didn't want them censored. And he, you know, the claim is that that John Whitley did not censor the radio shows and stuff that were that were coming out of Angola, which is very interesting. Um, you know, so he's continuing on and he's, he's starting all these programs and his, uh, shortly after his first year at Angola as warden, uh, it was actually July, 1991, some inmate welders were ordered by the corrections department, uh, to build a quote unquote hospital examining table. So they soon learned that it was a gurney to enable executions by lethal injection. Now, this took place hours after an execution by electric chair had taken place. One of the welders actually had a brother who had been executed at the prison and learning of these plans that, you know, this quote unquote hospital examining table um, was actually going to be the table they were going to use for lethal injection. Uh, he didn't he didn't like that too much. So, of course, as we told you, inmates like to gossip. Inmates like to talk. 
And so he goes around and he starts firing up inmates and telling them, you know, of this plan. They're not making us build a, you know, a hospital examining table. They're wanting us to build the table for the lethal injections. And he's riling up these inmates and they're bucking up, right? Uh, so they decide to stage a work strike. And this is hundreds, hundreds of fellow inmates. Now, when Whitley learned this was happening, you know, what does he do? He locks up all the all the guys that are striking. He says, okay, y'all are get, all getting locked up in solitary. And he brings in the SWAT teams, and he tells them to kind of get prepared, prepare for that strike. He also told the media that deceiving the inmate workers was wrong, and the work order should have never been issued. He kind of understood that it put the inmates in a bad position, and he wasn't going to subject them to building the lethal injection gurney. Um, when the inmates heard that, they basically ended that strike. There was no violence, and uh, and honestly, Whitley gained a lot of respect, not only with the inmate population, but also with his security force over coming out and uh, and saying, hey, you know, this was a, a bad call and a, a major lack of judgment. And look, regardless of what you, you know, may think about inmates inside of Angola, it's not really, you know, I agree that it's not right to ask inmates to build the lethal injection table for death row. Um, I, I can see why they get pissed off about something like that. And he did too. And he admitted to, uh, that that was a little bit too much to ask. So even, you know, the Baton Rouge morning advocate, let's talk about them for a second. They're a, they're the, the premier paper, I guess, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and are no fans of Angola, uh, to say the least. I mean, especially with Burl Kane, the the Baton Rouge Morning Advocate, and Burl Kane have a, a long history of hatred, to say the least. Um, so they're a very conservative paper, and even they commended him in two editorials for admitting that the prison had, you know, screwed up and made a mistake by asking the the convicts to build that table. And uh, and they went as far to say that was a refreshing thing to have a warden actually come out and admit that mistake. Um, and he was nationally even accredited for that uh, with, uh, you know, national magazines such as Time magazine, uh, which had a, a, a glowing article that they put out on John Whitley. So, I'm going to go ahead and I want to read you that article because this is really going to paint a picture of who he was. And then I've got another story I'm going to tell you about the Prison View golf course. There's actually a golf course in Angola that we're going to talk about. But I'm going to go ahead and read you this article by Time Magazine that was uh, put out Monday, December 14th, 1992. And the headline says, Bringing Decency into Hell, John Whitley. So it says, when John Whitley wanders into the courtyard of Camp H, he's not just any visitor. He is the warden, the man, yet his presence stirs hardly a ripple. He inspects a flower bed, points to some asbestos dangling from a pipe. Mostly, he just loiters, 
signaling that he is open for business slowly as if they have all the time in the world, which, of course, many of them do. Half a dozen inmates drift his way. One complains about missing laundry. Another asks that recreational time be extended. And all are polite, but none display an eagerness of someone anxious to please. Whitley, 48, listens intently, asking occasional questions in a gravelly twang. Nothing in his courteous demeanor suggests, I am the keeper, you are the kept. You understand that even if it's a small problem, it may be the biggest problem they have, he says later. You just don't blow anything off. Conditions were always not so relaxed and congenial at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Just three years ago, the main prison and five out camps at the 18,000-acre facility uh, were rocking with murder, suicides, and escape attempts. The move was so tense that a federal judge declared a state of emergency, which included a state investigation and tightened federal oversight. Discontent over the 5,186 inmates could be summed up in a word, hopelessness. Prisoners, the vast majority of them lifers in a state where a life term means life, blamed their despair on tough parole laws. At risk was a reprise of the chaos that the 1970s earned Angola in the dubious distinction of being the nation's bloodiest prison. Enter John Whitley, a quiet-spoken Louisiana native with a lazy smile whose cowboy hats and elephant-hide boots, how y'all like that, made more of an impression than his low-key manner. In just 32 months, he had turned Angola around, relying on little more than his sense of decency and fairness. The number of stabbings, hangings, and escape attempts dropped dramatically. The malfeasance has lifted. Security officers say that Whitley has improved communication between the prisoners and the 1,500 member staff. Inmates credit Whitley with providing new educational and recreational programs. And most important, inmates feel they have an advocate in Whitley at a time when courts and the Louisiana legislature seem bent on locking up felons. The way inmates and security guards tell it, Whitley sounded like the hero of a movie. He is open-minded, impartial, and considerate. The warden's pretty cool people, says Curtis Kyles, one of the 35 inmates on death row. He sees people as individuals, not throwaways. To illustrate their point, prisoners start with an incident that occurred on July 22, 1991. At 1210 of that date, Whitley presided over Louisiana's final execution by electric chair. Later that same day, orders reached the prison metal shop to construct a gurney that would henceforth be used for lethal injections. Two of the inmate welders balked. Then, 375 convicts joined their work buck. Confronted by every warden's worst nightmare, a prisoner rebellion, Whitley did the unthinkable. He backed down. He publicly called the idea a bad one and said a private contractor would build the table instead. He admitted he was wrong, says lifer Patrick DeVille. Wardens just don't do that. So as y'all can see, he was earning their respect there. Initially, some prisoners interpreted Whitley's reversal as a sign of weakness, but many changed their minds a few months later after the uh, state legislator imposed a strict October 1991 deadline for inmates to challenge their convictions. Whitley alone 
of Louisiana's 12 prison wardens helped inmates beat the cutoff. He authorized the prison print shop to run off 5,000 appeal applications. He instructed the prison radio station to hold a question and answer program, brought in a lawyer to field questions, then ordered all inmates to make uh, to listen. He also made sure that the illiterate inmates, which is about 70% of Angola's population, got help filling out the forms. So you can see there that, uh, you know, he was building up this rapport with the inmates. And then the article goes on later. Whitley describes himself as very conservative on crime. He favors the death penalty and believes executions would serve as a deterrent if they were carried out more swiftly. He has presided over two executions. After each, he said he went home and fell into a deep, undisturbed sleep. Whitley also says that his number one concern is security and that he has no, his number one concern is security rather, and that he has no moral problem locking up an inmate for life as long as the citizens understand that it will cost them. As a starry-eyed corrections rookie, Whitley admits, I was going to save them all. 22 years later, he thinks it's a complete farce to speak of rehabilitating inmates. They must do for themselves. All we can do, he said, is provide the opportunity. Does he believe a person can really change? Sure. I've seen it. They've aged. They've matured. They've shown they can handle their emotions. Would he give some of them a second chance? Sure, he said. Coax, the warden allows that there are a couple hundred. He could set free to more, and he would have no reservations. Now, some of those men were inmates back in 1970 when Whitley first started out at Angola as a classification officer. Armed with a sociology and zoology degree from Southeastern Louisiana University, he tried and failed to secure an appointment to the state police. Disappointed, he settled for a corrections job. After nine years at Angola, he moved to Louisiana's Hunt Correctional Center, where in 1983 he became the man. I never really had a desire to be a warden, he said. I just kept being promoted up. Sybil, his wife of 17 years, counters that. She says he says he's not ambitious, but I say he is. After retiring from civil service in 1989, he became warden of a privately run prison in Texas. When the call came from Louisiana asking him to return, Whitley's first reaction was to laugh. I couldn't see coming back to prison of the size and the problems of Angola. He set what he believes to be an unreasonably high salary. Get this, y'all. $70,000. Then found the joke was on him when his price was met. These days, Whitley's stiffest challenge is finding time to himself. The 28-square-mile domain over which he reigns is as demanding as any small town. There's fire and sanitation departments, a civilian population of 300, uh, which is mostly security staff and their families, a cemetery, a community, a swimming pool, and even a post office with its own zip code. Although Whitley and his wife and seven-year-old daughter Susan live in grand isolation in a spacious brick house atop a hill overlooking Angola, the sense of privacy is just an illusion. He can't even see Susan's swim meet without someone saying, hey, boss, I've got a problem. So when you live on Angola, 
you, you not only high access to the prisoners that are constantly complaining, but your employees that are constantly complaining. And that was one thing about Burrow Kane when he was at Angola, if you'll remember, he didn't live on the B-line. He actually kept his house, which was at Dixon Correctional Center. Uh, and I would imagine some of that might have been he foresaw these issues. Now, the article goes on. And it says, when Whitley took the wardenship, he signed for three years. Extending his stay, he says he depends. It would depend on how much he feels he can accomplish. It's clear he wants more. More medical, culinary, maintenance staff, a bigger hospital, more classroom space like every other warden in America, though he runs up against budget limitations. And let's talk about that for a second. Uh, you know, that is the biggest issue with any state prison. Nobody, including myself, wants to pay for prisoners. Um, and wardens from every prison in America will tell you they never have enough money. And it, it makes sense in a way. I mean, I don't want to pay extra tax tax dollars to lock someone else, uh, someone up. I know it, it needs to be done, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't like to have to pay for that. So, um, some of these programs are very expensive and, and when you have to rehab a prison, it's very expensive. And although I, I know there's a need there, nobody likes to pay for it. So they, these state prisons always have budget issues. It was short-sighted, he said, when you send out of prisons, uh, what you send out of prisons is going to reflect what you had in them. If that includes the warden, Angola's graduates are now just a little more likely to come out to fair, decent, straight-up people just like the man. And that was written by Time Magazine, another magazine that you wouldn't expect necessarily to be very complimentary of wardens. Uh, but in this case, it was. And that should tell you a lot more about who John Whitley was. And and just a reminder there, he was ser he served right before Burl Kane. So Burl Kane came in and um, the foundation was was built. It wasn't what Burl Kane brought it to while he was there. We all know. And, and we did a three part series, so I'm not going to harp on this too much. It wasn't what Burl Kane did uh, after he got there, but it laid the foundation for that. Whitley did a good job of that. So here's a little bit about uh, about John Whitley. And we're going to try to bring you more information on some of these, I guess, Angola's wardens from the past, uh, you know, every now and then. So you can hear that. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, I may mention of telling you a little bit about the golf course at Angola. And it may surprise some of you that they actually have one. They do. And it was actually built by the prisoners at Angola. It's located on the grounds at Louisiana State Penitentiary, and it's operated by the Louisiana State Penitentiary Employee Recreation Committee. It offers players, you know, a challenging round of golf. It's a nine-hole facility. 
meaning you know most of your golf courses are 18 holes this is a nine hole uh facility so you you would basically play those nine holes twice to get a full round of golf in uh and it's really it's a really beautiful golf course the number one tee box is actually elevated 75 yards uh above you know the ground it's, it's set in the tunica hills and the entire course, it's a par 72 course. It measures around 6,000 yards in total. There's 37 sand bunkers, and there are some water hazards there as well. It features a restaurant. It serves po'boys, fried seafood, hot dogs, cold drinks, and other assorted snacks. Now, the course was designed by the prison dentist, which is a guy by the name of Dr. John O'Ree. Or it's O R Y, y'all. So we'll call him Dr. John. Uh, the course was built with prison labor and funds generated from the Angola Annual Prison Radio. No public funds were spent to build that course, and it is open to the public. So you can actually go play that course. The course opened for play in 2004. Now, uh, if you're interested in playing the course, uh, you have to present valid state ID and play may be suspended anytime due to the institutional institutional needs or at the warden's discretion. So if someone escapes, they're going to say, yeah, you got to get off the golf course. Uh, convicted felons and individuals listed on any inmate visiting list are not allowed access. And of course, you can't bring firearms, drugs, alcohol or contraband items to that golf course either but a really beautiful golf course and i'll try to put some pictures of it on um on the uh facebook page and maybe some special pictures on the um patreon page so i'm gonna read you another good article here quickly on uh this was put out by the new york times in 2004 when that golf course was built it's pretty interesting because they actually uh talk with some some inmates who helped build that course and it says golf course shaped by prisoners hands golfers who step onto the new nine hole course here entered a rarity the green felt fairways of bermuda grass were graded and seeded by hand the sand pits were actually dug by workers using shovels not heavy equipment more striking is the view the first tee is a perch Carved from the Tunica Hills near the Mississippi River and provides a survey of all 18,000 acres of the prison. And that explains the hard labor. Prisoners built the course, which is on the penitentiary property and open to the public that they cannot play. A few inmates have earned the privilege of tending the greens for 20 cents an hour at what is officially the Louisiana State Penitentiary, but better known as Angola, which is 45 miles northwest of Baton Rouge. Lester Wright, who is serving a life sentence, says watching golfers on the course as he rides his mower is a bittersweet pleasure. When I look at them, I look at all the hard work that we've done trying to fix this thing for them. It's like, man, we did all this here, and look at them dudes out there playing. Sometimes I do want to play. The course, called Prison View, was conceived by the prison's warden, Burl Kane, a man who's uh, who views incarceration with a sense of humor. 
Visitors to the prison can buy T-shirts that say Angola, a gated community, along with Guts and Glory hot sauce, named for the prison's famous rodeo, at which inmates play chicken with angry bulls. At the golf course, the tees are marked with handcuffs. I do like that nice little touch. Uh, Warden Kane brushes off the suggestion that some prisoners might dislike the markers. No, they think it's cool, he said. They wear striped shirts in the rodeo. They like it. But Mr. Wright, 49, said he wasn't amused. What are they doing with the handcuffs out here, he says. Everyone knows it's a prison. It's really offended me when I first seen it. After that, I just passed by and mowed the grass. It don't matter. Well, Mr. Wright, you're in prison, brother. Mr. Wright added, they're all going to do what they want. We have to accept it. So that's all it is. It's all, it's all in trying to stay at peace with them and yourself. The course was primarily built for the use of prison employees, who many of whom lived on the ground in a little se- settlement called the Beeline. The course lies near Camp J, the Behavior Modification Unit. Y'all, that Camp J was the... Uh, you know, the we did a whole episode on Camp J and how horrible, you know, the how bad camp the, the reputation for Camp J was. It's no longer open. From the seventh hole, it is possible to wave to inmates on the Camp J basketball court where they are permitted to spend three hours a week. On a Sunday, uh on a sunny Sunday, the course attracted a handful of players, including a pecan sheller an oil executive, and a telephone network manager from nearby towns. Players say the charm of the course, it's dog legs, short drives, and a lake with an island went beyond novelty. I played a lot of courses, and I paid more money to play a lot worse, said Joseph Lattimore, a corrections colonel at the prison, as his three-year-old son Peyton hit a 15-foot drive. A transformation of the property from a bull pasture to a golf course took two years. Warden Kane said it was the type of job that gave inmates a sense of accomplishment and taught them useful skills like groundskeeping. Richard Mickelson, a 47-year-old prisoner from Alexandria, Louisiana, was on the work crew, and he said it is indeed a proud sight to see. I don't know how they build these things out here on the streets, but we did it with a shovel, rakes, and hose. James F. Moore, the director of construction education for the United States Golf Association, said he had a hard time envisioning a course built without modern equipment like mechanicalized leveler seaters and powered trenching equipment. My guess is it's the only golf course built this way in the last 50 years. I'd have to see it to believe it. Mr. Mickelson, who, like most of the prisoners, is serving a life sentence, said if he ever gets out of Angola, uh, which require an act of clemency, he would like to know exactly, he would know exactly where to go for networking opportunities. A golf course is a place to meet people, he said. I've been told uh, the main two places you go is to a golf course and church. That's where you get to certain types. Dr. O'Ray, who designed the course, said we want to go from a fun place to play golf to where people come back and say, that's a first-class deal. The fairways, he said, are planted with 419 Bermuda, as good as any country club. The whole course uh, was built for $80,000 paid for by the Employees Recreation Fund and donations 
A typical course costs four million to seven million, and course fees are low. A membership is two hundred dollars a year, and the green fees and carts are twenty dollars. Uh, Doctor O'Ray said the hope is for the course to pay for itself with some money to buy better equipment. The inmates have also learned a gentleman's sport. The par depends on the hazards and the length of the fairway, he explained. Uh, From building the course and learning what each particular thing is as we built it, uh, we knew how to play. They just couldn't swing a club yet, and that's something we're not going to be allowed to do. Warden Kane draws the line at letting inmates caddy. We're, we're going to avoid the hint of impropriety, he said. Some of the inmates who work on the course are known as trustees because of their good behavior records. And uh, though Mr. Wright longs to play on a real course, he says he would not choose Prison View. I would like to play as a free man, he said. I would want to learn all I can, but once I get out there free to play like I want to, I'll enjoy it more. So there you go. And, and uh, look, I'm going to go play that course uh, sometime, hopefully soon, and I'll give you all a report on, on my personal experience with it. Uh, and lastly for today, I'm going to give you a quick story. Look, we, we got to have an actual story for you on Bloody Angle every week, right? So I'm going to give you one that I'm almost sure 99% of the people listening have never heard Billy Blake Johnson was born on December 3rd, 1933 in Texas. He was a son of Emmett and Edna Johnson. And Emmett and Edna, his mom and dad, divorced when Billy was just a young boy. And by 1940, his father remarried and the family moved to what is known as Kern County, California, where Emmett worked as a truck driver. Nothing further is known about Billy growing up, but... In 1951, he joined the Marine Corps and was stationed at Camp Pendleton. His military career would be short-lived, and in January of 1952, Private First Class Billy Blake Johnson was being held in the Camp Pendleton Brig for robbery. So he's starting some trouble. Then on July uh, 18th of 1952, Johnson was able to open his cell door with the aid of a screwdriver he had acquired... And he then overtook the guard along with his firearm. Now armed with a weapon, he commandeered a car belonging to Captain George Atkins and made his way off the military base, headed to Los Angeles. So what do you think they do? They put out an APB, an all-points bulletin, and eventually two LAPD officers spot a stolen vehicle occupied by Johnson. Uh, so he gets ordered out of the car. He comes out and he's shooting just like one of these old fashioned shootouts. And he shouts, this is it. Officers return fire, but Johnson was, uh, you know, he's able to kind of escape injury somehow. He jumps several fences before he was taken into custody. And after his capture in LA, he was returned to that burg at camp Pendleton and was sentenced to five years for burglary and theft, among other charges. He sits in that cell for several months, and likely he's, you know, what do we always say on this show? You got nothing but time in prison. He's contemplating his next move, and on Saturday, uh, on a Saturday in late June of 1952, he escapes again. 
This time he had an accomplice, someone by the name of Bobby Davis, who had enlisted in the Marine Corps a year prior. The two make their getaway at 3.30 a.m. that morning in a green 1952 Chevy convertible with Texas plates. It's reported that the two were armed and known to be dangerous, um, and no details were really given as to how they managed to escape the brig, but they were apprehended a week later in Arizona. Guess what happens? There's another escape, a third escape and subsequent capture in Billy Blake Johnson. Eventually, he serves his time and he gets paroles, uh, paroled. But, y'all, that did nothing to re- rehabilitate him. So in January of 1962, Johnson went to a service station in Texas uh, in a little suburb uh, kind of south of Fort Worth, Texas. He buys $3.43 of gas, which back in 62 might have filled up your whole car. And then he pulled a gun on the attendant and he says, act right or I'll kill you. Johnson then takes $100 from the cash register and he forces a woman by the name of Hillary Beck into the car with him. Beck tries to fight him off and Johnson in the vehicle further threatens to, you know, kill her with this firearm. After driving about a mile, he then orders her out of the car and into a ditch, and he tells her to lie down, and he drives away. Beck gets out of the ditch. She goes to a nearby home and calls authorities. So law enforcement, they're in hot pursuit. You know, they're looking for him everywhere. They spot Johnson, and they start chasing him, and both parties are, like, firing at each other, sticking guns out the window, picture it, you know, and they're shooting back and forth at each other and police set up a barricade while, you know, uh, to catch him. They set up a perimeter and they know he's heading in a certain direction. And, uh, Johnson approaches Denton, Texas and a patrolman by the name of AC Ballard leveled down on the hood of his truck with a sawed off shotgun. And he blows out one of the tires of Johnson's getaway vehicle. The car goes out of control. Y'all, it rolls over. It lands upright in a ditch, and he somehow manages, again, not to get hurt. He escapes serious injury in this. And the scene, which, uh, so he gets out of the car and um, runs. (laughs) There's like a major man. This guy is like impossible to catch. Major manhunt ensues, and he eventually gets captured at a ranch in Denton County, Texas. Now, while in custody, uh, he tells the arresting officers he had escaped three times from military prisons and had served time in four civilian prisons. He gets treated at the hospital uh, for some very minor injuries, and then he's taken to jail. He goes to trial for all of this, um, but they find him to be insane legally insane by a jury. And there's, there's not really in the research I did, there's, there's not really a whole lot of information as to how they came to that conclusion. So his criminal career doesn't end there. Yeah. Y'all um, in 1964, Johnson went to Bonham, the what's known as the Bonham Texas jail for the sole purpose of breaking out an inmate. So it's important to note that a jury actually relate with, when you were found to be insane, you didn't. It's not like nowadays where you still stay in jail or whatever. 
they he actually got released. But in 1964, he goes to a Bonham, Texas jail, and his whole point of going there was to break out an inmate by the name of Walter Ray Cruz. Uh, this he has a gun. And he he literally breaks into the jail, overtakes a guard, and he forces the jailer to release Cruz and the two men haul ass. The pair makes it some 35 miles southeast to a city called Commerce, Texas, where they steal a car and they drive 300 miles to Fort Polk, Louisiana. Now, while stopped on the side of the road, a state trooper pulls over to check on him. He sees him. Uh, doesn't realize at the time that they're escaped convicts. He just figured they were broke down. He was going to help them. Johnson, uh, what does he do? He robs the trooper, which was a guy by the name of Jerry Rains, at gunpoint and handcuffs him to a tree with his own handcuffs. Cruz and Johnson then return to the stolen car and speed off. They head north. The trooper is able to eventually free himself with a spare key, and he, of course, radios in hey I, I just got handcuffed i'm sure that was an embarrassing conversation but uh the duo ends up getting caught by an armed roadblock near leesville louisiana so johnson gets sentenced to 15 years and this is when he gets sent to angola the notorious angola prison um bloody angola if you will so he goes to Angola, and they're thinking, okay, he's not going to escape Angola. Well, I wouldn't be so sure about that. On February 22nd of 1969, Johnson and two other inmates armed with knives and a pistol overpower guards in two separate dormitories. The guards were locked in a closet while the escapees cut the power of the main prison. Kester Lee Hall, serving 189 years for murder, was captured just outside the prison. But Johnson, along with Philip Hudgens, had managed to avoid capture, but they didn't make it far. Authorities closed in on the two fugitives who were found in the swamps that surrounded the prison. Billy Blake Johnson, however, had made his last escape. Overtaken by the waters of the backed-up Mississippi, Johnson could not battle his way through the swamp. Hudgens tried to assist him and even carried Johnson for several hundred yards until he realized Billy was no longer breathing. He propped the body up of his fellow inmate against a fence and just waited while guards closed in. Exhausted, Hudgens surrendered to law enforcement, and believe it or not, he would be released from prison in 1981. In 1983, he took a butcher knife and slashed the third of his wife and stabbed two others, incidentally. Billy Blake Johnson was buried in Oak Ridge Cemetery in Ladona, Texas. Although a cold, calculating, and elusive criminal, his mother still loved him. It's like Woody always says, uh, you know, there's a, there's a mom somewhere and a dad and a sister and stuff that love you no matter no matter what you've done. And his mother still loved him. His headstone was engraved with the simple epithet, son. So there you go. That's a story I bet you're not going to hear anywhere else. The story of Billy Blake Johnson. And look, I appreciate 
each and every one of you, Woody as well. We love y'all. We couldn't do this without our patrons. Thank you so very much. Uh, we have a big thing coming uh, to you very soon, and that's why Woody's not uh, joining us this week, but he'll be back next week, I promise. I want to bring y'all something a little different. I hope y'all liked it. Uh, just a little bit of everything. Golf courses, Billy Blake Johnson, and uh, and even the story of a famous warden at Angola. And until next time, I'm Jim Chapman. And for Woody Everton, we are your host of Bloody Angola, a podcast 142 years in the making, the complete story of America's bloodiest prison. Peace. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.